Hi, welcome to Chicana Code Switchers. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicanas in our master's program. We are also scholar practitioners in student affairs. This podcast is intended to provide insights into higher education with a focus on social justice and pláticas of student experiences. With that being said, let's start the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We are doing uh, doing another episode of uh, Chicana Code Switchers. I'm here with my co-host, Patricia. Hello, everybody. And today we will be um, talking to an incredible um, guest. Um, and we'll tell you more about him in a bit. But first, let's do our check-in. Yes. Um, so for our check-in, um, I wanted to talk about, um, I just read the article yesterday about UC Berkeley removed from U.S. News um, college rankings for misreporting statistics. And just to talk about how like um, another like university scandal, um, talking about how another prestigious university like UC Berkeley um basically misreported um a lot of the like ranks from like different things like where they're like ranked um this year they were ranked number two um college and um I have a friend who goes to UC Berkeley and so she was like talking about how it like UC Berkeley was her because they're usually number one and like this time they're number two um UCLA beat them and how like hard it was or whatever um because UC Berkeley runs on like this prestige and this sense of like number one college in UC. Um, and so with like this is misreporting, like it's interesting to see how like a lot of the people who are working behind the scenes of like getting uh, all these points from like alumni and all that, all these things um, basically bought or incentivized um, others to put a different ranking. And so it comes to show how like these universities basically like create this prestige by buying the prestige Mm -hmm. and how often so many of our like minoritized students go in applying thinking like wow I'm going to a top university when in reality um um it's just like a whole like mask right and so it's unfortunate that for some like if they're applying just for prestige that is the one thing and the thing that I tell students is don't especially if they're in high school or transfer students that are applying to colleges I tell them not to get caught up on like prestige or the supposedly like the fame of like the number one stuff because of these things you know when it comes down to it and having just worked at UC Berkeley this like past two months um, I can definitely tell you that it's not number one in many different things and so it's like the housing the food like a lot of the spaces to just book places is just a mess in general and so and there's a lot of things that are very um exclusive so I'm like when we look at these rankings it's like being sure that we're critical about um who is it ranking number one for first of all um and then who is it benefiting and if we had a better, you know, ranking system where we put, you know, how good are they in, in social justice initiatives? How good are they with first gen initiatives? And not just any first gen, you know, like it's 
a particular set of first gen scholars, um, students that um, the colleges are really good at, you know, because they can be good at number one in many different things. But again, like the misreporting isn't out of the norm. And I knew that there was like some things about like these like number one institutions or who are, you know, classified as number one as like, it's a lie because this, this year, um, there was this magazine um, called Diverse Issues in Higher Education. Um, and they were celebrating their 35 years this March. And um, the title and then like the underlying thing was like putting students first. Three California State University institutions ranked amongst the most promising places to work in student affairs. And the three universities that are showcase are like the VP of student affairs from uh, CSU, uh, Channel Islands, Sonoma State University, and Cal Poly, um, which we've mentioned so many different times in this podcast, how specifically Sonoma State definitely is not like the most promising place to work in student affairs, like in general, like especially if you're, you know, professional of color, like that's um, something that's like a very toxic place. And that uh, in general, like these rankings are very vague and they don't have like a specific on like um, criteria or rubric of how specific are they. And I, and I always question, I'm like, who did you ask? Like, because I can tell you there's many different students that don't feel that way. Um, and if it's not until like we have informal networks that we end up really seeing the reality on the other side of what that institution doesn't like bring out or want to showcase and so I redid that magazine um, and I put celebrating 35 years of diverse forms of oppressing into the 21st century <laughs> and then I changed the little blurb at the bottom and I put putting minoritized students last three California state three California state university institutions ranked the most toxic places to work in certain affairs mm-hmm. so um, warn the children and I put this on Twitter um, because it's like a form of like, I, I think like that's an important part for us to have these like warnings of what exactly to expect. And that um, it's like a, it's an important part to really underline who is it benefiting and who is welcomed and who is centered. And especially in these like workplaces where it's supposed to be working for students and it's not. Mm Yeah, no, that was, I mean, that's what happens, right, in higher ed. And these are the things that students and especially first-generation students don't know um, as they're looking at the list of colleges or as they're considering schools, you know, and being, I mean, and, and basing your, their decisions on these type, types of reputable um, or what you would say reputable uh, magazines or ways of knowing which school to, uh, to go to based on rankings, if that's what they, how do they choose to choose a school? But yeah, no, that was funny. The <laughs> changing all of the writing on it, if you could just, I mean, you described it pretty well, but it's, it's funny. <laughs> I've been to, I've been yeah. to the, uh, what is it called, Polly? And I was like, yeah, como dicen, um, like a dot, a black dot in that field of rice kind of thing mm. definitely stood out <laughs> and 
and I was just visiting as yeah. a professional and I th- I like I definitely sensed that I was an outsider or that people were like like that I was noticeable like I stood out mm-hmm. and so um talking about like all these like colleges and like applying to uh we brought in our guest um his name is Pablo Montes and his pronouns are he him um he is a graduate research assistant in curriculum and instruction um his educational trajectory he received his bachelor's at the University of Wisconsin Madison in 2016 and his master's in cultural studies from UT Austin in 2018 and now is currently working on the intersections of queer settler colonialism and indigeneity and land education, um, working towards his um, PhD at UT Austin. Um, and so he is a first generation working class student, migrant from the lands of the Purepecha and Gua- Guamares, um, also commonly known as Guanajuato, Mexico. So hi, hey, Pablo. y'all. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing How good. You, doing? you know, it's it's around 10 a.m. here in in Texas. I know it's a little earlier for for some of y'all. Maybe a little later for for some <laughs> for some others. <laughs> so, could you talk about your undergraduate experience? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, oh Lord! So, my undergraduate experience was. You know, being a first-gen, you know, working-class student, you know, the realities of college really don't, really don't set in until you're actually there, right? Like, you can think that, you know, college is, like, this wonderful thing that'll happen after you graduate high school, um, and they kind of, like, feed you this myth, at least for me, like, in high school about how, how easy it is or, like, how how great of a time college is, right? Without really understanding that there are layers, especially if you come from, you know, backgrounds that are underrepresented, like being Christian and and working class that really aren't talked about. And, you know, the realities of them aren't really, you know, discussed as to like what happens to us when we go to college after high school. So for me, it was, you know, I was fortunate enough, though, however, to like be in a pre-college program called Upward Bound. Um, it's a trio program, federally funded, um, although they're getting, you know, a lot of defunding from the current Secretary of Education, Betsy, whatever her name is. Um, and, but, you know, I was part of that program and it helped me at least anticipate, you know, some of these things, but really the realities were much stronger than any of my anticipations could, could ever do. So I, you know, I went to the college, I went, I grew up in Wisconsin, but I went to a college in Illinois. And because it gave me the most money, you know, it wasn't my first choice or my second choice, really, or my third choice, but it gave me the most money. So I was like, you know, I'm going to go here. And you know, and and make it work. But what I didn't realize, right, in my financial package was that those scholarships were only for a year. So, you know, they had only provided funding for a year for me. So I was just like, how are y'all dumb? (laughs) You know, like, what about the, the, 
the the next three or four years that I need of funding. You know how <laughs> how do you think I'm gonna be able to do that, especially as an out of state student? So um, so that year was like, extremely challenging. You know, I had three jobs. Yeah, three jobs that year. Um, you know, working almost forty hours a uh, a week. You know, being in college, going home every weekend to work. Um, so it was, you know, it was so tough and it was like really draining on my body that I actually ended up falling asleep on the wheel and I ended up, uh, crashing my car second semester, um, and like flipping over and just like my car was completely totaled. Um, you know, and you know, this is what first generation and working class students have to do, right? They have to do their academics times 10, right? Because, you know, we were expected financially to be, to have the safety net, right? From certain other places like our parents or our grandparents or, or whatever. Um, and for me, that wasn't, you know, for, for me and for many of us, that wasn't, that's not the case, right? So the first thing that I told the ambulance when they got to my to the site was don't take me on this on this ambulance because I know how much it costs mm. you know like these are the things that we had to always be thinking about like what is it gonna impact like is my health really worth more than um like not having a place to stay or food to eat right so um you know, that happened and this is how you know that professors aren't trained or don't know about first generation or working class students, or maybe they do and they just don't fucking care. Right. They, um, that day I had an exam, you know, so I flipped all over in my car, you know, but the police took me to campus cause I was close enough where they could come get me and drive me to campus. And like three hours later, I had this exam. I go up to the professor. I'm like, yo, can I take this exam another day? I literally just got into a car crash. I don't think that I'm in the mental state to to take this exam. And he literally dead ass looked me in the eye and he was like, where's your doctor's note? He's like, where's your doctor's note? And I was either like, are you fucking serious? I was like, I literally just got into a car accident. I told him, I can show you the police report. I can show you the pictures. I can do all these things to show you that I was legitimately in a car accident and I'm not just like making this shit up. He's like, without a doctor's note um, and you don't take this exam, it's an automatic F. So he's like, you can decide. Do you want to take this exam now or go get yourself a doctor's note? And, And, and yeah, so that, you know, that, that just goes to show that professors and professionals in, in that sense, like really, don't start to realize what are the the things that happen with first generation students what are the realities what are the life circumstances right that that just happen because you know because of our 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 backgrounds so um i fucking took the exam i passed yay (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but you know that that showed me that that they really don't care that many of them really don't care about us right showed no type of empathy that I had um, just got into a car accident, nor that I couldn't even afford to go to the doctor at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
So, you know, I, I was I left that university because of the scholarship and financial reasons. I went to UW Madison and um you know, continued my educational trajectory there. And um so, so you know, um I finished at UW Madison, right? I got my degree. Um and I was in the McNair Scholars Program. I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with it. Um, it like helps, you know, first gen low income students get to PhD programs. So I I decided, you know, I applied everywhere and UT Austin was my first choice because of the professor who was there. Um, Dr. Luis Urieta, who's fucking amazing and brilliant. And, um, you know, I wanted to work with him because he did a lot of work on, like, different ways to conceptualize knowledge, knowledge production, you know, like, what what is and is not valued as, as knowledgeable, right? And um, what are different ways, what are different ways to engage with knowledge systems, right? So he came from more of an Indigenous perspective of, like, what are the Indigenous knowledge systems that are happening? How can we learn, you know, how can we partake in these this decolonialization of education right because there's so much that's that's colonial about its structure about the way it's it's manifested and continues to subjugate you know certain bodies and certain people so um i really was drawn to that program so i was like fuck it i'm gonna go you know this is you know this program is great but you know so this is where my trajectory is like really interesting and how i i know i'm in the right place right i I've come to know that nothing is coincidence, right? Things happen in particular ways for particular reasons at particular times for you to be where you're at, for you to grow, for you to learn. So for me, you know, UT Austin actually gave me no funding at all. Zero, nada, like not even a job. Like they gave me nothing. And I was just so upset and frustrated because like this was the university I wanted to go to. And this is the only university out of all that I applied that didn't give me anything. So I was like, are y'all serious about this? I'm like, how can you be a tier one institution with the second largest endowment in the country next to Harvard and not provide your students, Mm -hmm. graduate students, housing, financial resources, or even a job to go to your university? Um, Where is that? Like, where is that money going? Like, y'all have billions of dollars. Where is this money going? I don't understand. So, I mean, at that time, I didn't know all the statistics, but I knew that, you you know, that these universities have money and are financially capable of supporting their students. So I was very close to accepting my my offer from the University of Maryland at College Park because they had offered me, like, an amazing financial package. I'm like, this is great, but it didn't completely fit what I wanted to study, right? And I'm like, I know I could make it work, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. So throughout, you know, throughout, because I, I received the, you know, the offer from almost all the universities around March. So I, you know, I still wanted to go to UT. So I emailed like literally everybody at like the Division of Diversity at UT. I'm like, hey, is there a job? Can I, you know, like, how can I get a job here? Because I want to do this work with students. You know, and I want to come to this university. So two, three days before I had to submit my final offer letter with Maryland, 
UT calls me, uh, the, the, that division calls me, and is like, hey, we found a job with McNair. Oh. Yes, with McNair. And teaching a class about race with, with first-year students. And I'm like, bitch, yes. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> I'm like, yes. <laughs> so, like, I was just like, what? The Cosmos, what are you doing up there? You're making me wait until the day before. But I was like, this, this, this is you know too much of a coincidence. So I asked for an extension for Maryland. UT offered me the job. However, UT still by no means was up to par with the package that Maryland was giving me. But at that point, I'm like, you know what? This is too much pull for me to go to Austin. And I can't deny that I have to I have to take the risk and go so I didn't know anybody I didn't I didn't I mean the job was great but it didn't pay well you know um you know they offered me health insurance and some and tuition some tuition remission so that was great but they paid me $12 an hour you know and I could only work up to 20 hours and in Austin you know, I'm sure in California, y'all know, like, the whole housing prices and just how wild it is over there. You know, Austin is relatively expensive. So, um, you know, I I went down UT. I did all, you know, I, I had to get a, another job again, you know, and do full-time grad classes. And, yo, those first day, the first week of grad school, I was like, this shit is not for me. I was like, this shit is not for me. Um, I feel stupid as fuck. Like all these students are like, hella, you have the the vernacular and the vocabulary of navigating conversations like this. And I, I just told myself, I literally have no idea what's going on. You know, like I walked it, I walked out of that class, my first seminar graduate class, feeling defeated, feeling like, you know that I wasn't prepared at all to to be in a space of that you know of, of that intensity so you know um, but those feelings you know like started to change you know I met some really amazing people and then I realized what that the true purpose of me going to this university wasn't necessarily for the education right sure it was great but it wasn't necessarily for the education it was for the people who i met right and the community that i helped that you know helped foster me basically into this new landscape this new terrain that i had you know never been to so uh, i met some amazing amazing community members that took me in you know and helped guide me and navigate the realities of, of grad school austin and texas at large right so um you know, those people are, you know, my some of my best friends now, right? Like my best friends now. You know, we travel to Standing Rock together. You know, like I had only known them for like two months. And they're like, yo, we're trying to go to Standing Rock. You know, like, <laughs> let's go. And I'm just like, let's do it. Fuck it. <laughs> and because I, I remember, you know, and it felt right. And I felt like I knew exactly what was my purpose of going to Austin, right? And it it wasn't necessarily to to study. It was to to reorient and remember, re remember, right? These different ways to look at life in the world. 
to look at a cosmology that I thought I had, that that I thought I couldn't, or that it wasn't for me, or that I had no no say to partake in, right? So I met, you know, these people. I, I went to Standing Rock. I came back. I started being acquainted with the indigenous community here in, in Austin. And, you know, that completely reshaped the way that I looked at everything, right? And that was the inception of my, of my, the inception of my transformation, really, right? It was like the inception of me doing that decolonial work by letting myself be vulnerable to precarity and the, the unforeseen and the, and the confusing and the, the un-understandable, right? So, um, you know, that, that happened and, and to, you know, to, to cut it, you know, Charlie, I got my master's, right? And, um, and with this new orientation of how, how to look at life and decided to, you know, pursue my PhD. And um, honestly, I was tired of being poor, you know? So I was like, I'm really looking for a program that fully funds me for my PhD, mm-hmm. right? And actually, the semester before I graduated with my master's, I was so poor that I had to get a full-time job on top of my 20-hour assistantship. Wow. So I worked as a college advisor for Upward Bound at a community college here. So the job was amazing, though. I loved it. It was difficult as fuck because it was a new program. But um, it it was great and amazing, and I loved it. Um, I had to, had to um, step away because I had a different opportunity. Um, but, you know, like, so I, I did all that while writing my master's thesis. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So I was, like, writing my master's thesis, doing all this stuff. And, um, and you know, it, you know, the hustle is always still there. So when, um, so when I was applying to PhD programs, I was, like, I need to have a program that fully funds me. No exceptions. Like, I can no longer continue being a student and be expected to find my own resources and finances to cover everything that I need to. So I applied to two PhD programs at UT, Mexican-American Studies and Cultural Studies, which was the same program I graduated with a master's in. So I applied to those two because I wanted to stay in Texas. And um, so I applied. I got, um, I got into both of them. And cultural studies offered me again zero, nada, nothing, not even a job. And Mexican American studies gave me a full five year financial package, full fellowships, full assistant instructor positions, summer travel, research grants, todo, you know, todo lo que quería me lo dieron, right? So, uh, quite honestly, I followed the money. Because as poor students, first-gen students, you're like, fuck yeah. You know, $25,000 a year sounds fucking fantastic. So, of course, I'm going to take <laughs> I'm gonna take this offer. Because, like, you know, $25,000. Why, would you, why would you turn that down? You know, like, and, and you're not in a position to think about all the other, like, things that you need and seeing how like your trajectory for for so long like you end up focusing on something else that's like such a survival like thing 
that we don't even have the luxury to think about other things like am I going to have a good mentor am I going to have a good you know teaching you know positions am I going to place myself in a really good place where I can really elevate to another level exactly yo that's literally like the exact things in retrospect you know that I've come to not realize verdad porque en el momento no más ves todo el dinero you're like this is it you know like this is what I need because that's what always been what I needed and it's like the first you know when it comes down to like it, it always comes down to money and to think about like you may be a really good PhD student like in terms of you know how to get to the next step but I feel like most of our um like our friends and our colleagues like what we have a harder time is thriving into like okay so now that you're there exactly what's next oh so 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 I was in that PhD program for one semester (laughs) (laughs) um and I really saw you know like so I'm all about like not like to the 100%, but you know, like astrology is fun to look at and you know, all this other stuff. I'm a Leo, blah, 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 right? So <laughs> one of the things that supposedly, you know, in my past life, I I was over obsessed with was materiality, right? Materiality, the material things in life. So mm-hmm. um, even though like people have their own perceptions of astrology, right? Like it's not, it's not definitive, right? It's it's all up in, for interpretation, but that really, at least for me, allowed me to, to say, you know, materially, like materiality can only do so much for me, right? The material thing can only do so much. So when I was in that program, you know, it was great. I mean, like I was learning, but something just wasn't fitting right, you know? And I was, I was like, please creator like send me a guide send me a message like I don't know what's going on I feel so not in it like I'm I just like feel not in it I don't know what's going on and so I went to this because uh, I go to consultas con uh, una una anciana guatemalteca right and she does consultas um, and she she she's a guide so I went up to her and I'm like help me. I'm like, I, I don't think the PhD is right for me, right? This was around um, November. I was like, I don't think the, the PhD is right for me. I don't think I'm cut out for this. And without even like looking at anything, she just looked me straight in the eye. She was like, you're going to get your PhD. I don't even have to like give you a consulta about this. So really, what is it? What is the question you're really trying to ask me? So I was just like, ah! I was like okay so then you know that really pushed my my way of thinking about what really is it then that I'm asking is it really the PhD or is it this PhD so um so then I'm like, okay, I'm like, maybe this is the difference, right? Maybe this is what why I'm having such a hard time distinguishing the two because I feel like 
it's a fine program. I just don't feel it's the program. So then, you know, life just gives you these people and these lessons at the perfect, the most beautiful time. So Dr. Patricia Gonzalez, um, um, who is a professor at the University of Arizona, came to give a talk um, around that time. So I went and, I, you know, we talked to her and we were able to have a private dinner with or a private breakfast with her. Um, you know, and in her talk, she was like, for me, academia is second. No, she's like, academia is third, maybe second of my priorities when I, whenever I do any of my work. She's like, my first priority that will always stay true and will always be first is my people, my community, the ones who I do work with and for. Because academia is not the person that I do work with and for. Academia doesn't deserve any of this knowledge, right? She's in a, uh, she's Kickapoo and um, I forget her other tribal affiliation. But, uh, you know, she's an indigenous scholar. She's like, I don't owe academia anything, nor does it deserve anything that my people have to offer, you know, this institution, this colonial institution, right, that, that, um, that constructs what is and is not valid knowledge. So she's like, that is my first priority is the people. And it's like, and if someone, you know, if in the institution doesn't like that, well, that sucks because it's always going to be first for me. And, you know, so I really took that to heart. And, um, and when we had this private breakfast with her, you know, we were talking about like all of our struggles as, you know, as, as indigenous students and like what it meant. And, you know, and she like looked at us and she's like, follow your intuition. She said, follow your intuition and your gut because those are muscles. Those are muscles that you have to work with, right? And those are signs from creator. Like that is, you know, a spiritual organ. And once you start, you know, really refining it and really start tuning into what your, your gut and your instinct is telling you, you know, things will happen that you want to happen or that you hope to happen. So, you know, um, I, I've been really trying to, you know, live by that, you know, by that life of following my instinct and my intuition because it's, it's, it's a message, right? So in that, I was like, I know that. So in that moment, it was like December 10. And as I'm sure as most of you all know, December 1st is the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> To apply to <laughs> so I go back to my professor, uh, Dr. Uh, Profe Luis Urieta. I sit him down and I'm like, Profe, am I crazy to think to leave five years of fully funded, good funding too? It was like up to par with some of the most elite institutions, right? Like some good money. I'm like, am I dumb? to leave so much money for, you know, and go back into cultural studies, knowing that, you know, I love y'all program, but y'all suck at funding. <laughs> and I told him, I was like, and, and he was real. He's like, we are the program that receives the least amount of funding in the College of Education, but we're the ones that receive the most applications. Mm -hmm. So then you start to see the hierarchy, right, at least of, in, edu in education of itself of what is valued, right? Let's, you know, what is deemed as, you know, not knowledge worth investing financially in. 
it was extended. Which education, ones are those? Higher education, um, educational policy. Those were the three that received the most funding. So cultural studies, olvídate. You know, so that's that's why he said he was like, I wish we could provide you more, but literally they give us crumbs. So so he was just like, so if you want to make this decision, you know, like, you know that you have a full committee supporting you and, I'm, and, you, and you're welcomed back here with open arms and we would love to have you back. And I was like, you know what? I don't fucking care about the money at this point. You know, like, I want to be in a program with a mentor like you who realizes, you know, some of this work and the pr profoundness of what we have to do for our people. And I'm just like, I, there's no, there's no turning back. I'm like, I want, I want to be back in cultural studies. So he's like, so this is, you know, like how I know that things have to happen this way because, um, so he, you know, was past the deadline. So he's like, you are so lucky. He's like, because I was about to email a student today who was like, can I submit my application late for the PhD? And I was about to tell him no. And if I would have told him no, I would have told you no, because ethically, right? Um, so he's like, do you want me to start making calls? And I'm like, yes. And I'm like, I'm gonna pray about it. So an hour passed and he's like, congratulations. You've been accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. oh, I thought he was going to say, I have, a, I have two names in this folder. Right. <laughs> Everyone who's uh, applied. Oh, my God. And you're one of them. So, he, 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 I was, he, was, he was like, you must have been praying real hard. <laughs> or not so much, because that's, a, that's one of the things that's really interesting is that entre mm -hmm. menos lo esperas like like when you take away the prestige when you take away like all these materialistic things that look good on paper um but don't feel right in your gut how you're mentioning like we would lose out right. in so many different other programs that would really take care of us in a whole different right. sense that it's not just monetarily and so like i i felt the same kind of sense what i was like looking for master's programs and thinking like which one's going to do better you know the one que no me da dinero the one that has some sort of opportunities and like understanding like that although you know once you chase the money you really mm -hmm. don't receive mm -hmm. that much care and guidance and mentorship that is so valued in a whole different way that like once now that we've we're in this position of like money or not having money in mentorship or not, like I'm like put myself in a position where it's like, what would have happened if I would have chosen the program that gave me nothing, but would have given me everything right. in a, another sense, you know, like ESA, like care that and mentorship that I needed in order to fulfill my dreams as a PhD student mm -hmm. now and not having to chase other people to be like, hey, can I be under your wing and can you teach right. me? No, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, like, and the realities are, you know, like, no one should ever be ashamed of, like, chasing the money, for, especially for first-gen and working-class students, because, you know, that that's real. Those are, you know, materially things that you need. So I'm like, if you do, you know, like, 
go for it you know like for me go it was for just it. like you know i know that this is what i need and i feel it and i know it i'm gonna trust it that this is the path that must be taken um and when i tell you pati and Ariana, that that this is like i know that this was the right choice was because you know i got accepted i i went back to culture studies this, this past semester in the spring and they the school of education had just and i when i mean just literally this past semester had just changed a lot uh, like a, a ruling with transferring credits from your master's into your phd because it used to be that regardless if you got a master's in in education from the school of ed and you and you transition to a phd you would have to do the full four to five years regardless however this past semester they changed that so now I can transfer my credits from my master's into my PhD and it shaves off three years of my, of my, uh, of my coursework and of me obtaining my degree. And you know, what is like, like the wildest thing is like knowing that you had to take that leap of faith and you had to like trust that, Si vas a seguir tu camino, mm -hmm. like it's gonna be your camino, and like everything else is smooth sailing after that. But you <laughs> pick the riskiest, you know, like you have to take the riskiest first step to just make sure that things just work well, you know, like and and knowing that no sabes nada es para like no, nada está like concrete, but you're like this is where mm -hmm. I feel like it's my path that I exactly, have to take. yeah, like. And I, and I told myself, I'm like, el dinero siempre va a regresar, you know. But, you know, I valued that professor's mentorship so much. And I was like, it feels like it's, un, you know, like a, a tío, right, that just happens to, happens to have a PhD who's, like, really, like, sitting down. I'm like, okay, vamos a ver lo que tenemos que hacer. Como te apoyo, como te ayudo. You know, and he... Like, when I tell you who's, like, one of the most humblest people ever, I'm just, like, this, everything that I could have ever asked and imagined of a mentor, I had right there, you know? And, um, you know, he and he's given us opportunities because he gets invited, because he's such a huge name in education that he gets invited to write articles, like, journal articles all the time, you know? And he's now, like, letting us write those articles with him. He's like, do y'all want to write this article? I'll just put my name at the back. Like, <laughs> what professor does that? You know, like we are writing scholarly articles that are going to get published that th that other scholars invited him, but is letting us as students write the pieces so that we are able to, you know, to grow as students. To him, like he doesn't care about, you know, like um, how many published articles he has. He really is like wants us to have those things so we're ready when we exit this and to recognize that, you know, you are a similar, like you're another colleague and you're another, like the way that I see it too, is like, if anything, they should really invest in the graduate students that are coming up because we have such another upgraded, elevated way of doing research. Right. We are mentored on the foundation. So, um, so it was, you know, so I know I've made the right decision. And of course, you know, the money will always be, will be, you know, kind of the, uh, 
what's it achilles heel whatever that's white shit called but yeah like (laughs) (laughs) what shit called (laughs) like or the thing that is like the obstacle for us but in the end once we like reevaluate okay where's our strategic place where okay que vamos a hacer el plan you know it is always money but it's like with the support of other people it doesn't always have to be all about the money um once we are in a better position to do that um but as an undergrad you know definitely like chase some of the money but knowing that there's like repercussions for that and that once you have more people more support and most importantly like for you it made a whole Mm -hmm. difference that you already had this connection with that mentor and so once you have this (laughs) set like (laughs) (laughs) and transitioning into like a whole different experience of like what isn't mentorship and like good things like uh your research experience and talking about how like your activism and lived experience and how that like transitions into that process yeah yo so like I mean, I really, like, I've come to know that the work that I do in my community doesn't have to be written somewhere in an academic journal, right? Nor should it, nor does it have to. And quite frankly, like, this is, I think, now the hardest part of this PhD is realizing that I am basically getting two Right. And this is what one of the elders said, like, y'all are getting two PhDs. Right. When it comes to like doing work for the people, organizing community work, you know, thinking of your indigenous community before the before your before the institution of of the academy. Right. Because, like, for example, um, you know, sometimes I'll go to like ceremonies that that'll last. A good amount of time, you know, a good amount of time. So it's like two or three days that I haven't done, right? In air quotes, done work. But that is work. That's spiritual work. That's communal work. That's organizing work. And it gets so frustrating. And I think this is, a, you know, what what's coming to mind is like I me esfuerzo tanto, right? Like making sure that I do this communal work that it feels like when someone asks, well, where's the work work? It's kind of a slap in the face, right? It's like a, oh, pues, no estabas haciendo trabajo, nomás es, you just went somewhere and did stuff. And I'm like, no, this, yeah, basically. No, you wasted time. You know, like, that's the thing that they tell you. It's like, you wasted time. Like, that's not what is going to get you this. That's not what is going to get you that. And it's like, Instead of putting the values and credits on that is a, a type of work. Y, y estás haciendo, like, and, and, and from my experience, like, just this past summer, having to work, like, directly with the community that I so-called stay mm-hmm. in my CV, in my research statements, and all these things that I so-called do. Right. And then it's a whole different world when you're actually there, embedded with the community and working with along with these communities that we're talking about that is so easy to say in theory but i'm like it's a whole different world exactly living in it in the flesh exactly yes he is and it's like it just and i mean my mentor like that my professor you know he is one of the few people i have ever met that really 
captures and makes me feel like the work that I do is important, right? Because like when I, because I missed like a whole week of, because I was supposed to be like observing his class and I missed a whole week because I was in a ceremony in the desert, right? So then um, he comes back or I come back and he's like, how was it? You know, like, how was it? Like, how was, like, what did you learn? Like, what, how was the experience? You know, never once did he, did he say like, no veniste clase. Like, where's, where's your work to show that you were actually doing stuff? Mm. You know, never, those, those words never came out of his. Do I know that that's a responsibility I have? Of course. Yes, I do. You know, because I have to do the class. But he valued and he acknowledged, literally, I felt seen for the work that was being done. And, you know, and he thanked me for going. Who does that? Like, no one really, like, not many professors thank you for going out and doing that work and not expecting anything, per, like, materially in return. Exactly. Or a recognition from his part. Because, like, that is another thing where it's, like, they, they want all these, like, materialistic things, but then also they want these superficial awards. And if anything, this episode is, like, a talking about really the superficialness that all these awards and all these things in academia happen that when it comes to doing the real work and doing the decolonial process of like really unpacking a lot of these things that we carry and, and the kind of work that we later on want to put into um, our research. So could you tell us about um, decolonial research methods and how that has like changed how you do research right. and how you so exist of, in academia. You know, I, I get a lot of a lot of inspiration from like um, Audra Simpson, Eve Tuck, um, Linda T.R. Smith um, about like how to approach research, right? How to make research less exhausting and more true. Like, like speaking to the truths that you have, not the truths that they want to hear. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the challenges and, and finding the balance of what it means. And I think one of those practices, at least like decolonial methods that I have come to really appreciate is the, the method of refusal, right? And refusal not as a, as a no, but as like a generative way to say something more. Like we're refusing to tell you this, not because, not because it's just a no, but because, you know, there is something that has to be acknowledged with us saying no. So um, for for example, like we, for a, a paper that during my, during uh, one of our classes, we had to write individual papers, right? As, as all most seminar papers we have to do, like we had to do them individually. So me and my friend were like, let's refuse this shit. <laughs> we're like, let's actually practice this de decolonial method not just write about it, mm -hmm. right? So like, let's put it into practice. Let's actually do what we say we're doing. So what we did was we didn't tell the professor anything and we wrote a paper together. And we wrote a whole seminar paper together, you know, collaborative writing. And we told them, you know, we told in that paper, like this paper cannot have been done individually because that is not how we as indigenous people operate we can't operate that way and we don't and we haven't and we won't so we refused in that way and it wasn't a no right because it, it wasn't like a 
no, we're not going to do it. It was like a no. And we are doing this instead. So, you know, we wrote the paper together. And I thought that shit was lit. (laughs) (laughs) And understanding how, like, that, like, refusal and like not participating in like when you're being conditioned right. to be complacent into things that you're like in your naturalmente like outside of academia like this is something where you would do collaboratively and like with community and with work and and how you're mentioning not speak the truth of not just and, and this is the key part is like right. stop speaking other people's mm-hmm. truths um, and lived experiences and and stop thinking mm-hmm. that you know everything when you're not really unpacking your own life mm-hmm. experiences and your own trajectories in the spaces that you're in now. And so one of those ex- instances, um, we've talked about how like you've had experiences with particularly <laughs> two white women in research. So what is colonial <laughs> what is their colonial? <laughs> Like, um, like work, it Oh, Lord, your experience. A... right? Ooh. The complete opposite of this one. <laughs> <laughs> Destruction, quite honestly, literally, that's what it is. Um, oh, Lord, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll start with this is that after that, those experiences, I have trusted very little white women um and i say this because like they use because you know they they are in a realm of marginality right because of of their gender because of them being women right but they fail to realize that the the superimposed layers of colonialism and oppression don't exclude them from the power of whiteness right and i think that's and i'm pretty sure that's what they are so actively trying to to disassociate from right is the power of whiteness because they they know that that them being women in ways subjugates them right so they latch on to this marginality right of being a woman without realizing that they're still imposing you know white supremacy you know settler colonialism you know um Whiteness, ba- yeah, Beckiness, <laughs> Beckiness, cis, like you know, they're like cisgendered privilege. Exactly, also and it's, isn't it's just so frustrating. And it's so, you know, I I worked with two different. Uh, well, I've, actually, now that I think about, it, I worked with three white women at UW Medicine. I forgot. Shit, they come well, in the sets third of one three. Was actually really, like she was amazing, <laughs> and she was really great, and like. Uh, after those two experiences, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, really, another one? But this, this, ex- the last one was great. Um, and I'll talk a little, a little bit just about like, how that experience was quite one eighty from from the other two. But the first one, are, um, was, you know what? I don't even fucking care. Uh, Alice Kaufman, and um, she. She's daughter of world-renowned sociologist Irving Goffman. Mm-hmm. 
I did not notice as a 19 year old little tween. <laughs> like, I didn't know that this, this person was like to that caliber of, you know, recognition. So, um, you know, I go and, and I don't know what I'm doing because it's my first research experience ever. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I need guidance. Like, I know it's, I'm interested in stuff, but I don't know what. And after that semester, she told me literally to my face, she was like, you are the worst graduate or the worst research assistant I've ever had. And I was like, well, you're the shittiest mentor I've ever had. I was <laughs> <laughs> Your research is shit. <laughs> so... I was just like, what the fuck? I'm like, I'm learning here. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a first-gen working class student. I have no idea how this shit operates. No one has told me, like, there's no fucking manual about how to do any of this shit. So how dare you look at me in the eye and say I'm shitty knowing that you come from elite prestige, you know, genealogy, knowing that you have the background that you do. How I was just livid. I was just like, are you serious? She ended up apologizing the semester after, but I was, I was just like, okay, I see, you know, how, how this is. And she wrote me a letter of recommendation for, for McNair and she, in her letter actually wrote, I don't think that this program is cut out for him. Wow. Uh-huh. And, and, and the, and she said, if you choose him, he's going to need a lot of work. Oh my God. Even wrote that in like, in the line. Aparte de todo el descaro. And I was And that was after your about um, was that after she apologized to you? Yep. Wow. Great apology, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not really an apology, you know, like in in understanding like how like this works, like this um like research opportunity could have made such a transformative experience. In like your trajectory and like getting better at research, mm-hmm. you know, like if she couldn't really mentor you, it could have been like, you know what, let me acknowledge mm-hmm. and take ownership of the fact that I may just not be the best mentor for you. And I don't understand what it's like to be a working class first gen student of color, you know, and, and put you into a better like here's a position where, you know, they could actually do that work. Exactly. Yeah, since I'm just a shitty person, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Even that. <laughs> you know, they have to favor, you know, because white mediocrity mm-hmm. allows for them to think that they have a bloated ego and that they're so great. Yeah. Get what did this white woman end up doing? So, um, she actually got a huge backlash for her book. See, and this is white people doing work in communities that they are not a part of. And I'm like, y'all white people, if y'all are listening to this and y'all are white, stop going into communities that are not yours and doing fucking work. Okay? No one needs you. You are not wanted in those communities. Go do work on your own fucking communities. Your white Becky, uncle, sisters, grandmas, whoever, go do work on them because it gets so frustrating for white people to always feel the need to insert themselves in communities and spaces where they are no longer needed or really have never been needed in the first place, right? But they feel an obligation because they want to absolve some type of their settler and white guilt. Stop it. You need to stop it. Go do work on your own people. Sorry, end rant there. But 
Um, so she went Facts. and did work in a low-income black neighborhood in Philly. And apparently, wow. yep. And apparently, um, you know, she was um, she. There was like through the grapevines that is not through the grapevines anymore because it's you know people have talked oh, about it <laughs> that she apparently like slept with some of those participants to get information the audacity the cacacity and the scattle the cacacity <laughs> the beckery the beck yes i was just like i mean i have not fact checked this you know this is all great finds but if it were to happen i wouldn't be surprised you know, because wow. here comes this wealthy, 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 rich, white woman going into a predominantly low SES black neighborhood. You know, like, what are you doing there? Like, like as an eth- like, I'm I'm so over like this observant ethnographer, like, oh, like. I'm just going to see what the culture is like by observing in the outskirts. I'm just going to like capture the culture for what it is. But I'm, nah, just stop. Just fucking stop. I'm just like, I'm tired of it. Um, so, so, you know, that, that is, you know, something that, that happens quite often is that these white researchers build their career, build their CV you know, their accomplishments, their recognition on literally the backs of black and brown communities, right? They exploit, they extract, they take. For and on top of that, and on top of that, it's like when it comes now, like the PhD programs and even when like you're doing professor positions, now they're asking for this diversity statement or diversity work. That scares me mm-hmm. because at that point, I'm like, it should be more explicit and explaining explaining do the community go back to your own community where like your roots where you come from and unpack what does that look like right for your own thing and so that would set where i want y'all white people to go back to your communities and unpack what it's like and observe analyze digest i don't know what y'all need to do (laughs) 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 and you know combat and confront what does it mean to be white and observe them in a different lens exactly. like through the whiteness through the privilege acknowledging it and seeing it in the patterns where how do you how are you all as you know as white people going to stop the the access to privilege the all of this and and if anything this white becky could have just been like a whole research on beckiness right because you have access to them and you know, look at what these researchers are doing mm-hmm. and call it out. Build your own, you know, legacy, your own stuff on like doing the work that you need to do in your own communities. Exactly. But, you know, that would mean that they're going to be, you know, traders. Like, I want you all to be active traders into this. Oh, Lord. Yeah. So, like, literally, all what you just said, yes, exactly. And, um, that's why it's just, you know, I've, I, and for, por razón, right? Like I'm very, very careful when I'm around white professors, you know, because I know what they're capable of doing. I've seen 
my entire UW Madison career was white white professors literally treating me like shit. You know, it wasn't until my very last year what I that I found you know, that two of my mentors actually showed me, you know, the possible possibilities of white professors engaging with students of color. You know, so um, this other professor, she was even worse. She's worse. This other professor who I interacted with was worse. I know, like, how can you get worse than that? It gets worse. I mean, you could, you could, you know, if anything, if 2016 have ever has ever taught me anything, is that yes, it will and can get worse. <laughs> the oh, the garbage, the garbage, the basura <laughs> will show itself. Oh my god! And uh, oh Lord, did it show? Um, <laughs> So this one, Becky, um, and so I was president of this organization in undergrad, right, called the Working Class Student Union, and um, and like I mentioned a little bit earlier before, you know, I was a homeless student for a hot minute, um, for like a whole semester, so I was just like, why isn't there like emergency housing for students who are homeless or are in transitional housing, you know? UW Madison is a huge university, you know, like, why can't they offer this resource to students, you know, maybe just literally like a couple apartments somewhere where students can go and have a place to stay, you know, because Madison gets fucking cold, it's like negative 40 some days in the winter. So, um, so with this organization, we started working, collaborating with this one professor in educational policy, and She's a huge name, like a huge name in educational policy, like literally in the top five of like most talked about educational policy scholars right now, right? And um, so we like brought it up to her. We're like, hey, like we started having conversations. We're like, this is a great idea. Let's bring it up to the chancellor and to the director of housing and the dean of students, you know, to see if this is a green light. Maybe we can do something about it. So we did. They gave us the green light. We're like, yay. So then this is where shit just hit the fan, multiple fans, industrial fans. I don't even know. <laughs> Factory. Factory fans. Shit. Um, she emails us, right? Like after our meeting with all these high admin. And she's like, I am the co-chair of this initiative now. This is our mission statement. This is what we're going to meet next. This is what we're going to do. And this is how it's going to go. Literally without consulting anybody. She sent us this email. And we were all just like, what the fuck? Where was the communication on this? So then we emailed her back like, yo, I think there needs to be a bigger conversation about, we, like, we didn't know we needed hierarchy, first of all. You know, this is an initiative. This is not, you know, some whatever you want to put, you know, tag your name on and create like a director and whatever. So like we, we addressed all of our concerns. She, and we signed it off as the working class student, union, right? Our organization. She emails, she emails us back and addresses me. And she's like, Pablo, how dare you try to like derail this initiative? Da, da, da. Like, uh, I have put so much work into this, you know, initiative. And if it wasn't for me, 
y'all wouldn't have gotten that that meeting with administration um and because i told we told her if this is a student issue this needs to be student-led right like this is affecting students this ain't affecting you you're fine you're great you have money you have a house you're great this is a trust fund issue right basically like this is a student issue so students should be at the center of this work and she's like no she's like students should not be at the center of this work because students come and go she's like we need someone to be more established here so the work can get done and she's like and honestly and i have and i saved the emails because i'm petty um you must save them. And so I have all of them. She said, um, you know, students come in and go. You need someone more permanent. She's like, if you decide to bring any of this up in our next meeting, I will quit. And you need me more than I need you. Verba- I am kidding. I am not kidding. Verbatim, this is what this professor said. This needs to be like in an archive gallery where it's like, color who are you know like student activists who are trying to like push the the administration to you know provide services that we like need that should be one (laughs) what are the obstacles what are the things that you have to face you know on a daily basis where you get gaslighted you get told no you know like like, all these things i was i was so livid because then when she sent that email uh, there was another student who worked with her in the office. The professor messages her on Facebook and says, what the hell is wrong with Pablo? I saw the message and I was like, okay, this bitch wants to fight. I was, oh my, I have no idea. I was like, oh my God. Oh, and you know what infuriated me the most was when we went into this meeting all the points that we had brought up as an organization, she brought up on her own and claimed them to be her points. Then she had the audacity to email me and said, how do you think that went? So I was just yeah. like, are you serious? I was like, and this is how you know that the professor is doing it for their fucking work, for their CV and their accomplished list of accomplishments and not for the students because she she has built her entire career on first generation and working class students her entire career that's her entire career and um she and i knew that the work wasn't really for us right the work that we the resource that we needed wasn't for us because had she really cared really been invested in our well-being she would have she would have said i hear your concerns as first generation working class students let's talk about it so we can move forward instead it was like how dare you question my my authority i will leave and you need me more than i need you yeah and the the interesting part was you know we discussed this briefly oh, like, on yeah. Instagram because I had posted oh this like research um, article that she wrote yes 
and that's how I found out and that all makes sense now because now like putting it all together in her article she writes it really well like to the point that I was surprised that I was like wow this white woman is talking about these issues that transfer students experience like trans like the the challenges about this like um the bill uh that Obama did to like increase like higher ed like back in the times when it was like Obama era and at the end, no tenía nada de substance. Like, I'm just like, okay, like, well, like, how are you going to make it happen? Like, she had no clue because that makes sense. She was listening to all these working class first-gen students and putting all the dots of the challenges that they have listed, but nothing where it's like, and this is how the administration can come Yo, in. Yo, I completely and here's the forgot list. about it all like, makes our sense now. we had about that. I, I, oh my God. Ah, uh, yeah, so like, a lot of people look up to her work, right? And look at her work as exemplar <laughs> models of what, you know, research with first-gen working class students are, you know? And it's so frustrating because she actually, 2016, she actually came to do a book talk at UT Austin. And yeah, yeah. And I wanted, I wanted so badly oh. to print out the email she had, <laughs> she had, emailed me and just like you know in Mean Girls when Regina just like throws them everywhere <laughs> literally I wanted to do that I'm like okay like just be like clearly I still have some resentment bit. towards this um, and she's been on the Trevor Noah show too hmm. so y'all can go did you all report this anywhere or how how did things end wow so great question because she actually left UW Medicine because I have heard that she has had a stack of bias reports against her because um, I remember one student who was my uh, who was my academic counselor at UW Medicine uh, she had done a presentation about the Black Lives Matter movement and what black women's role was in the movement right so she gave a presentation and apparently this professor was there and um, quoted her on a tweet um, and actually like put the n-word in her tweet like it was like I think she had like one or two stars at the end or something but the presenter because she's she's black she's like I never said that mm-hmm. she's like she literally put words in my mouth so she did she filed a report on on her and um, and I heard that there was like a a good amount of cases where students reported her for um, for that type of behavior. So then they, UW-Madison was actually like thinking of firing her, even though she had tenure. So you know that was shit was serious. Um, so now she's like, I'm... And especially how many like are stacked and knowing how institutions work where you have to report like hundreds in order for them to even have like a, you know, a case. And on top of that, like if she's tenure exactly. and well known, like so she big, ended up leaving. I think she's at Emory big, big now. Deal. Atlanta. Um, so no Temple. Sorry, no, not Emory. Temple. 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 Goodness. Um, so she's at Temple now. Um, so so yeah. So those were like the experiences I had with like wealthy, rich, white women, elite women, white women. You know who who have latched and really have done their work of extraction from these communities. Cause 
honestly, I'm just like, I'm I'm so done even entertaining their their work. So I'm like, y'all, great, y'all are doing this work, great. Who is it for? What are you doing? If it's not for the for the community for the people, I really don't give a fuck. Yeah. And to think that, like, not just like how, like, the evil side of like research, the unethical side right. of research, and the importance of if you are really here for the community, like, right. make sure to, you know, put grad students' names on there. Make sure to acknowledge the work of undergrads because, like, a lot of this work that we do is coming from students, and we don't get the, like, and this is coming from, mm-hmm. like, not just white women, but, like, in general exactly. in academia, like put our names there uh, so yeah that, and acknowledge that, the work that, that was we some do. of the the hot tea straight off the brew yeah <laughs> straight off the keurig <laughs> <laughs> right the keurig oh my gosh um is there any anything else any advice any um last words about yeah. You yes. Know, academia, your Just, experience. You no, know, academia is that you would is like to share world, with us, right? Like, don't let it. You know, don't let it influence you in so much where it becomes your only truth. You know, um, because I've seen professors who get stuck in that, you know, and realize that that you know th- that is their life is academia. You know, for me, I can't and I won't. And it cannot happen for the work that I want to do. Academia cannot be central, nor can it be first. So I know other people have, you know, different ways to prioritize academia. But my only last kind of point would be don't let it run your truths and it become your only one. So that that is what I would end with. Oh, thank you so much for, you know, joining us in this episode and like sharing with like such, I mean, everything that you said was just like so big, you know, and, and until you go through, you understand the magnitude of how actually important all these lessons have been for, for you and for many others. Like, thank y'all so much. Totally relate. Great. um, Uh, Chatting with y'all again. Thank y'all so much, you know, for trusting me (laughs) Uh, in in the invitation, you know, uh, and, and sharing some of my experiences. Thank y'all. Y'all are amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of that, all of that content that mm-hmm. we have and that you shared, I mean, and um, just some of the things that happen in academia that, you know, you never know who you'll bump into. Right. <laughs> um, so for all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and us your POC business conference and event shout outs and listener letters you could also record a listener message on anchor app and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes follow us on instagram at chicana code switchers and on twitter at x code switchers and if you want to support this podcast you can always venmo catch up us at chicana code switchers and or become a patron contributor thank you all for tuning in this week's into this week's episode and until next time. Bye. Bye everyone.